morning, everyone. Terry and I recently uh, watched an interesting documentary on Amelia Earhart on the History Channel. Anybody see that? I love uh, watching documentaries, personally, or reading biographies or life stories in general. I find them interesting because of all the information and research that simply goes into one person. I mean, I I think they're incredible. Uh, The story about Amelia Earhart was interesting because they recently discovered a a new photograph in the National Archives, which appears to show Amelia and her navigator alive sometime after the crash. So they go back into this well-known story trying to look at it from every possible angle. They look at flight data, how much gas was in the airplane, the weather conditions the night she flew. They look through all the clues within the communication file that exists. Most important were some of the eyewitness reports, many of which were second generation because that first generation had died off. But there was one who was still alive who claimed to have seen Amelia Earhart uh, uh, during that time, sometime after the crash. It's, it's hard to say, and really it's difficult to know with any certainty, but they make a compelling case that it's very possible that Amelia Earhart, in her effort to make it back to land, crash-landed in the Marshall Islands, where she was then taken hostage by the Japanese, who later potentially executed her and her navigator, thinking they were spies. That's hard to say with any certainty, but uh, they make a compelling story at least. And the reason I tell you that is because when I think about the the New Testament, I think it's probably the greatest documentary that's ever been written. Instead of one eyewitness account, you have multiple eyewitnesses accounts that that all line up as they describe one person, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. People who knew him intimately, people like Matthew, Mark, Peter, John, disciples, his inner circle who knew and lived the life with him during that time. People like Paul kind of observed him from a distance, but one day met him face to face, right, on the Damascus Road. And then there's Luke. And Luke is the one that may be most interesting to me because he writes his gospel account based on exhaustive research. In a sense, it's a documentary, which is essentially what he tells the recipient of his letter, a man by the name of Theophilus. Listen to what he writes at the beginning of his gospel account. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Very much like the story of Amelia Earhart, Luke took it upon himself to look at this story from every possible angle. He calls it a careful investigation. And like all good documentaries, they're written to a specific audience at a specific time. In Luke's case, he's writing to Gentiles. 
And he's presenting Jesus to this audience in a way that they would understand, which is different from Matthew and Mark and John. Luke is writing to Gentiles who don't have that same background in history as the Jews. So, for example, when Luke presents Jesus in his birth narrative, it's one of the most detailed narratives of all the Gospels. Instead of beginning, as Matthew does, with Abraham, the father of the Jews, which would make sense for a Jewish audience, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, the father of humanity, which makes sense to a Gentile audience and actually includes them in that story. This morning, we're going to look at Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll notice that it's very similar, but Luke leaves out all the Jewish parts. He didn't talk about how Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets or how we need to have a righteousness that surpasses the the scribes and the Pharisees. Because that simply just wasn't a part of the Gentile world. Instead, Luke is writing to a specific audience with a specific purpose in mind. He wants to show that salvation is found through faith in Christ alone. That Jesus Christ is the Savior, but not just for the Jews, for the Gentiles as well. Which is why he writes in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, he says, A Savior has been born to you, his audience, the Gentiles. And his name is Christ the Lord. Which makes the question Jesus asks in our passage this morning all the more interesting. When he asks, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord? And how does the testimony of your life match with the testimony of your lips. Or to put it another way, if your life was a documentary, what would it say about what you believe? So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we enter into your word, may we do so humbly, with open hearts, with minds that are intent on learning, with the hope of being impacted by your truth in a way that changes our life to more effectively glorify your name. Father, you ask such good questions, such penetrating questions that are intended to reveal to us something about our own heart. You see, you already know the answers to the questions you ask, you're God. But you ask them so that we learn something about our own heart. We learn something about you and what it means to trust you with our life. So I pray that as we consider this question this morning, that that would be true for us, that you would have your way. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So let me give you a little bit of a context to our passage this morning. Uh, uh, Jesus has just named his 12 apostles. Okay, There are several disciples that will ultimately follow Jesus throughout his life and ministry, but these 12 men would kind of be his inner circle. They would know the life and ministry better than anyone else. They live it with him intimately. And, and of course, they're the ones who give that eyewitness account. Well, immediately after selecting these men, Jesus asks them to join him as he goes to speak to a multitude that has now gathered to hear him teach and to see his power put on display in healing disease. 
And as you think about that, I want you to imagine what it might have been like from the perspective of these 12 men. What might they be thinking? In my opinion, I think they kind of feel like rock stars. <laughs> the reason is Jesus is easily the most significant attraction in all of Galilee during this time. Every time he shows up, there are multitudes of people who gather to see him. And now Jesus and these 12 men walk in together and they're on center stage. They've gone from these no-name fishermen to being the very center of attention. (laughs) But Jesus is going to put all this attention into perspective based on what he now has to say. Look at uh, Luke chapter 6, if you would. Luke chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 20. The multitude is gathered. The 12 disciples have been identified. And with them, it says in verse 20, And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad on that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. It says that Jesus turns to his disciples. So he's speaking specifically to his disciples in the midst of this large crowd that has gathered. He unveils this upside-down paradigm of the kingdom, where the first are last. The poor are blessed. Those who weep will rejoice. The disciples may have felt like rock stars, but Jesus says, Your true reward is when they hate you for my sake. When you're ostracized, not popularized because of your association with me. See, Jesus knew that many in these crowds that have gathered who are ready to crown him as king would one day call for his crucifixion. When being a disciple would be like a death sentence. So if people were following Jesus as a path to prosperity, popularity, they would be deeply disappointed. If they were looking for some great reward this side of heaven, they weren't going to find it. Look at how he continues in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well Bed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Again, if you're feeling like a rock star, <laughs> these are some sobering words. If your goal is life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, This is not what you expected to hear. You see many, including the disciples, and I believe including the 12 apostles, believed that Jesus would be a political savior, 
someone who would set things right, someone who would make the world great again. But Jesus just gave the worst campaign speech ever. Because Jesus isn't running for political office. He's not rallying support for a political agenda. Jesus is establishing kingdom principles. And he wants his disciples, people like you and I, to understand how those things apply to our life right here and now. Look at how he continues in verse 27. But I say to you, who here love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Jesus is describing a radical love, an extreme kindness, a kingdom based on servanthood and sacrifice, not power and influence as they expected. Jesus is describing a people who are marked by love, love for those who are not like them, people who don't necessarily support their agenda. He says, look, Even the sinners do that. There's nothing special about that kind of love. He says, instead, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. That's a radical love, right? See, the kingdom concept that Jesus is describing is absolutely foreign to the world in which they live. And that's the point. Jesus is shifting their attention from worldly pursuits to a kingdom perspective. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by your love, a radical love, an extreme kindness, a love for your enemies, a a, a blessing for those who curse you, prayer for those who persecute you. It's an attribute that is distinctly different from his disciples compared to the world in which they live. Look at how he continues in verse 43. Skip there and read with me. Verse 43 says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. See, Jesus is going to great lengths to describe the attributes of his disciples, where this radical love is put on display. And I don't know about you, there's great accountability, because he's talking to his disciples in the midst of the crowd, who will then examine their lives to see if it's being lived out. They, the crowd, will know you, my disciples, by your love. And this is what it looks like. 
See, when the Bible talks about fruit, it typically is referring to our character, observable attributes that are seen in our life. Jesus says, a good true tree will not produce bad fruit. In the same way, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. I have a good example in my backyard. I have an apple tree. It's a bad tree. It produces lots of fruit, but it's all deformed, small. All it does is fall on the ground and absolutely make a mess in my backyard. Well, Jesus takes that kind of an example and says, what's true for the tree is true for people. Bad character produces messy lives. Lives littered with hurtful words, broken relationships, selfish ambition. Just like a tree is known by its fruit, our character is revealed in our conduct. Our actions reveal what kind of person we are. The good man, out of his good treasure, stored in his heart, brings forth what is good. I want you to think about it this way. Our heart is like a bank account. It's where we store our treasure. And each day, we make deposits into that account based on things that we hear, things that we see, things that we read, conversations that we have. Moment by moment, we are making deposits. We are storing up treasure in our heart. And then we invest in others out of what we have then stored in our heart. We can only withdraw out of what we have deposited. So, if you put good stuff in, guess what? You're going to get good stuff out. And if you put garbage in, guess what? You're going to get garbage out. You will invest out of that which you deposit. Very often, your words are a really good indicator of where your heart is. Jesus said, your mouth speaks out of that which fills your heart. Because I think in some ways, Jesus understands that we can be imposters. We can put on a show that makes everybody believe something about us that may not be true in our heart. Makes me think of that encounter that Dorothy and the, the three friends had with the Wizard of Oz. If you remember, he's behind the curtain pulling levers, pushing buttons, buttons. I am the great and powerful Oz. But you'll remember in that last encounter what Dorothy said when she said, if you are really great and powerful, you would keep your promises. She didn't realize Dorothy was a theologian. She understands the paradigm of this passage. What we say and how we live reveals our true identity. Eventually, that man or that woman behind the curtain is going to show through. The lifelong pattern of our language and our behavior reveals the real you. Look at how Jesus continues in verse 46 with this question. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you who he's like. Like a man who's building a house, who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And the, when the flood rose and the torrent burst against that house, it 
could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house upon the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and it immediately collapsed. And the ruin of that house is great. Jesus is teaching that obedience is the evidence of discipleship. It reveals a relationship of trust. You see, if Jesus is truly, truly Lord of my life, then he directs how I live my life. My allegiance is to him. The decisions I make are based on his word. His life becomes the pattern for my behavior. Just like our words reveal what is stored in our heart, our actions reveal the sincerity of our words. See, we can all claim to follow Christ. We can say that we believe in God. But how does the testimony of your life match with the testimony of your lips? Or as I said in the beginning, if your life was a documentary, what would it say about what you believe? Jesus uses that very familiar illustration to help make his point. We all know the story, right? The two builders. He talks about the first builder, the one who life is consistent with his confession. He builds his house on a rock. And you'll notice Jesus says that he digs deep in order to find the rock. See, the builder is looking for something solid upon which to build his life. Why? He does not trust his house to stand on its own. He must build his life on a foundation in order for the building to be strong. Because even though he may be building that house on a nice, sunshiny day, he's anticipating storms. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. He knows that the foundation of that home ultimately determines the strength of that home. You may remember before we left on our backpacking trip, which I hope to share a little bit with you next week. But before we left, I told you that the forecast didn't look good. That there was supposed to be lots of rain, which actually happened to be a very good forecast. It was all true. <laughs> but here's the good thing about that. We anticipated the rain. So we packed accordingly. We prepped and prepared for the rain so that when it came, we were okay. We knew it was coming. It was not a matter of if, just a matter of when. In the same way, the wise builder is anticipating storms in life. The foolish man, on the other hand, is building his house on sand. He looked up and the sky was blue. In this parable, he didn't worry about a foundation because he didn't feel like he needed one. He trusted that his house would be just fine on its own. He was content to live in the moment. The sun's shining, so why worry about the rain? Well, just like character is revealed in conduct, our faith is ultimately revealed in the storm. In this parable, the storm is intended to represent final judgment. <laughs> that last uh, judgment in which our lives will be based on our faith, where we built our house. And what Jesus is teaching is that any life that is not built on the strong foundation of faith in Christ alone will not endure that final judgment. In the end, a house that is built on sand 
It was intended to live and function on its own, apart from dependence upon Christ, will not stand. You see, knowing what is right is not enough. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. Knowing what is right is not enough. And and I say that to an audience like this because (laughs) most of you grew up in the church. This is the Bible Belt. I'm not telling you anything this morning that you have not already heard. But knowledge without obedience is not true faith. That's the point Jesus is making. Knowledge alone is not enough. And in the storm of the final judgment, your house won't stand. If Jesus is not the foundation of your life, you simply will not endure. And faithful obedience is the only sincere way you can see true faith. You see, I think Jesus has gone to great lengths to speak to his disciples in the midst of this crowd to describe intentional living. Because discipleship, by definition, is not a passive pursuit. Receiving truth, listening to sermons, reading your Bible does not change your life. Only when you live out of what you learn are you then transformed. Here's my concern for the world in which we live. It's the information age, right? So we are inundated with input. I read recently a study that says that we look on average at our phone, get this, 2,000 times a day. 2,000 times a day. To the point that when we're away from our phone, we're uncomfortable. Because we're so used to looking at it, we feel uneasy when it's not there. At least I do. That's true for me. We are inundated by input. What we read, what we see, what we hear. And all of that input impacts what we believe. And then in turn, what we believe impacts how we live, how we behave. I'm concerned that we can take so much information into our lives that we've got no room for Jesus. We don't know how to sit and be still and quiet before the Lord, to pray, to think deeply, to dig deeply into His Word and consider that impact in our life. You see, He's not Lord of our life because, to be honest, (laughs) there's just not enough space. We can be so inundated by worldly input, we can lose the kingdom perspective altogether. I think that's part of what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples. Even as a Christian, we can base our whole belief system on what seems easiest to us. Why go to church when you can listen to a podcast? Why read the Bible when you can read a book that someone wrote about the Bible? Why worry about all the complicated matters of theology when you can reduce it to 140 characters? It's amazing how many people's theology today is built on Twitter posts. That's their input. But hear me on this. Relationships are not built on sound bites. Discipleship is an active pursuit. A long obedience in the same direction. It's an intentional investment 
of meaningful time. My family and I just got back from a week at the lake, and I can remember growing up as a kid, that was our vacation. We'd go to State Park at Possum Kingdom Lake and camp out together, and everything we did, we did together. We ate together, we slept together, we played together. It was the most wonderful memories that I have, even today. And I hope that someday my kids will look back to things like we did this week and say the same. Because it's an investment, a, a meaningful investment in meaningful relationships. It's how strength is built. And I think the same is true for discipleship. It's a meaningful investment. It's learning to live out of what you learn. The storms we face in life don't wreck our faith. They reveal it. Let me say that again. The storms we face in life do not wreck our faith. They reveal our faith. And we must dig deep if we want to endure. Faithful obedience is the truest evidence of a sincere faith. This summer, Doug and Sherry McAlpine had the privilege to go to Africa and spend some time with uh, some acquaintances that they've had in the past and learn about their lives uh, in Africa, having spent time with them in the United States. And they were exposed to a lot of different experiences, uh, too many to recount today. But I did want them to take some time just to share a little bit about their experience as it relates to what we've just been talking about. So, Doug and Sherry, if y'all would come up, please. I didn't remember your mentioning that I should just share a little bit. We only have 2,000 pictures, but you'll be pleased to know we're only bringing about three or four. And so uh, it's one lesson kind of for both of us. Um, my lesson is kind of two points. One, it's a good treat taking the illustration. You're, if you look at the picture, the American couple there is Keith and Carol Plate. Uh, they're with International Student Ministry. I work with them. And they're the ones that invited us to Africa to speak at this conference. They've been with the Navigators for many years and lived in Nigeria as missionaries and doctors for 25 years and have been back 15. They go back all, probably twice a year now. And it's him being a doctor in Nigeria is what started a lot of this. In 1974, he started doing Bible studies with some of the medical students at Josh University. And in 79, the man in green, Stephen, is uh, one of the guys he had in Bible study. The man in blue is his roommate. And if you look in the back, you can see some of the dormitories of Josh University. Uh, when we went back through here, if I remember right, I think this was the first time they'd both been back to see this university since they'd graduated. But they did Bible study together with the idea of 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have seen in me, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's that taking truth and not just living it out yourself, but then teaching it to something else. And so taking the things we've learned and just making sure you're teaching them to someone else. And so the result, if we can go to the next slide, is a lot of these men. This is the group I got to speak to. Gosh, there's a lot of faith established here. And a lot of these men are a result of the lives of Keith and Carol pouring into a couple people who pour it into others and leaves a legacy like this. So they're a, a good fruit.
coming out of it. And a lot of these people, you know, most, they're all, the husbands in almost all these families are medical doctors. They could leave the country. It's a third world country where power is undependable, water may or may not be on on any certain day. And they could go somewhere else and live a very comfortable life. But they've chosen to sacrifice to reach the other people in the country at ex great expense to them. Sherry has a story of one of them. Next one. This is a man named Steve. He's a doctor in Nigeria. He's an infectious disease doctor. And um, he is from the northern part of um, Nigeria, which um, tends to be a little bit more radical Muslim-oriented. It is the area where the Boko Haram comes from. Um, and um, they, well, it's just an interesting group of people. I, you can't really see on his face, but he's got um, stars on his face that are tribal markings. And um, tribes are a really big deal in um, Nigeria in particular. There's between two, two and three hundred tribes. I can't remember exactly how many, but, and they don't necessarily get along and they all have different languages and stuff. But you are known, your reputation is based on what tribe you come from. And every tribe has a different reputation. And his tribe is known to be um, more aggressive, more intimidating, more um, assertive in nature by who they are. But Steve is a believer, and that makes a difference. When we were at the spiritual retreat, Doug was giving three messages. And um, the me topic was serving as a leader. And as he was speaking, I would sit around, sit in a room and look around, and I couldn't tell how people were taking his messages. I couldn't, you know, kind of get an idea, so I just prayed, Lord, you know, I prayed that some of this is making sense culturally, just translating well and, and all. And, um, but after the messages, we had a time, um, two kids' times. One is the question-answer time that was phenomenal, and the other we broke up into small groups of like five people, and Steve was in my group. And um, the first thing, we sat down and he said, everything that Doug just talked about is against everything I've ever been taught about what it means to be a man or a leader. And he, he just, he goes, if I do this, if I do what he says, if I follow Christ in the way that Jesus um, led and the way he served, because the messages were out of John, and um, one of the examples was when Jesus um, washed the disciples' feet. And he goes, you know, we are taught, we do not boil water, we do not sweep, we do not, if you do that, you are less than. And he gave me some examples of what he would be called and how he would be known if, if he served like that, if he did any of those things that, and what he said was very offensive. Everybody in this room would be offended by what he said, and if you were called that. And um, so he goes, if we live this out, it is at a cost to who we are, to our reputation, to our jobs, to our families. And he goes, the only way it makes a difference is if I do this for a lifetime. Then they will know that it is real. And that's just what you're talking about this morning because it has to be a lifetime. It has to be something we do continuously. It can't be just a sound bite. It can't be this stuff. 
And for him, it affects everything he does. For all these doctors, it affects everything they do. And so these were radical challenges to walk with God. Like, I mean, showed us with the example that he had. And I was thinking about our once a month study that we have with Bonnie. And um, well, one thing that Steve said, it's countercultural for us to walk with God. It's countercultural to serve. And Jesus came, and he was counter to his culture. Everything that he did ran up against the Pharisees and what the system that they had in place. And it upset everybody's heart. And so we have examples of what it lives, looks like to come up against a culture, come up against what's expected, and do the opposite. And um, it made me look at my life. And it challenged me, is my life offensive to the culture I live in? What, what am I displaying? Am I, am I showing that I've given in to the culture I live in? That I've become so comfortable in the world that I don't look any different than anybody else? If it is, then I'm not living like Jesus did. And I'm not living counter to my culture and I'm not serving as Christ did. And so I think that's a question for all of us to think about. What are we living for? Are we living counter to our culture and therefore standing for what Christ lived? And these men and women in Nigeria, especially as far as our trip was gone, but everywhere, they live that every day. They put their life on the line every day. They put their job on the line every day, depending on if they stand and live ethically and follow Christ. And so, it was huge. I think trips like Doug and Sherry have taken, and if you ever get an opportunity to do something similar to, to especially experience uh, Christian faith in a different culture, even if it's the perspectives class, which may be uh, the only way that you can gain that exposure, it'd be well worth it. Because I think it does cause us to at least consider the possibility that many times we live our Christian faith out in a way that is most comfortable to the culture in which we live and not counter to it. And we don't have to go out and try to be counter to the culture. <laughs> no, try to be offensive um, in the name of Christ. I think if we live faithfully for the cause of Christ and follow what he's commanded us, um, it will create a disturbance enough to ask people um, to cause people to ask questions. And that's the whole life and ministry of Jesus. I talked to a friend yesterday as we were leaving the, leaving the lake. He lives next door uh, to where my parents have a place. And we were talking about this. And I said, I've been really uh, um, moved by how many questions Jesus asked compared to how many answers he gave. Because it's very disproportional. <laughs> a lot more questions than answers. And I think it's because he wants our hearts to be stirred in a way that we turn to him for the answers that our hearts really long for. So I pray that maybe that has been the case for you this morning. Let me close our time. Father, I'm grateful for the questions you ask, the ways in which you want us to examine our heart and consider uh, our lives and what they say about what we believe. Um, if our life was a documentary, what would it say about what we believe, who we follow, where we put our trust, where we invest ourselves. 
May we be people whose fruit, the, the conduct of our lives, would mirror the confession of our lips. And that we would be faithful to put that on display in a way that would be counter to the culture in which we live. That we would be faithful to you above all things. And that would be the truest evidence of the sincerity of our faith is a long obedience in the same direction. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.